Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy. Speak and Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is one of the greatest drummers of all time, Dave Lombardo, co-founder of Slayer, drummer on, in my opinion, every important Slayer record in history, and someone whose current bands include the original Misfits with Glenn Danzig, Jerry Only, and Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein, Mr. Bungle, Suicidal Tendencies, and Dead Cross. Our mutual friend Ross Robinson connected me with Dave. A few years ago, Ross recorded the band Beloved Ghouls, a supergroup that allegedly comes together every Halloween, featuring Derek Green from Sepultura on vocals. Speaking to Story podcast guest Gary Holt of Exodus and Slayer on guitar, bassist Jeff Johnson, keyboard player Jason Schimmel, and in this particular track, which they released in 2020, terrorized Touche Amore frontman Jeremy Bohm on guest vocals. The song, which was produced by Ross and mixed by another friend, Steve Evitz, was released with proceeds to benefit Save Our Stages. This is one of my favorite conversations with one of my favorite musicians. Remember, the best way you can support Speaking Destroy is on Patreon, where you get access to bonus episodes called from my interview archives that aren't available anywhere else, conversations with folks like Glenn Danzig, Randall Blythe of Lamb of God, Kirk Hammett of Metallica, and more. I would also implore you to please leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast listening platform of choice. You can find more about the show and our guests at speakanddestroy.com. Follow Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all sorts of Metallica-related content from over the years. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. The theme that you are about to hear was composed, recorded, produced, mixed, performed by my good friend Scott Mellinger of the band Zeo. So here it is, my conversation with Dave Lombardo. This is Speak and Destroy. I'm curious, as someone who grew up in Indiana and moved to California like 20 years ago, you know, as an adult, I associate Southgate with uh, Dave Lombardo's childhood and uh, the guys from Cypress Hill. So it makes me curious, um, you know, was that a a neighborhood, an area that was heavily populated with Cuban immigrants or is that a coincidence? Um. No, no, there were there were Cuban immigrants all uh, around that area, uh, Southgate, Huntington Park, Bell, Cudahy, um, Maywood, all that southeast of you know L.A. area. Uh, you know, there were a lot of Cubans, you know, sprinkled about. But um, you know, but there were all other other kinds of immigrants. 
I remember there was a Belgian family that lived across the street from me, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Korean family, uh, a Russian family. There were uh, Spaniards that lived next to us. And then, you know, there are your, your uh, Americans, you know, which at the time were, you know, white people. And uh, and so it was, it, it, it there, you know, there was a big mix of, of uh, you know, ethnicity and cultures. Um, but, yeah, I mean, right around the corner from my house, there was like two Cuban families. And then, of course, Sendog. Uh, San and Reyes, you know, lived a couple blocks, uh, or, or eh, about four or five blocks from, from my house. And, uh, yeah, so it was a melting pot for sure. What do you think it is about that particular area that made it so rich with diversity or, or kind of a magnet for, you know, so many different folks with so many different backgrounds to, to show up there? I just find that really interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I believe Southern California, LA in general, you know, is is a magnet, and uh, you know, ca yeah, California. Uh, it's a it's a place where people you know dream about and, and want, yeah, you know, to visit and or feel like they could find a better life here. Uh, when before I was even conceived, uh, my brothers were sent. To the United States before my parents defected, and uh, and they asked my parents, my mom, you know, well, what city or or what state would you prefer your children, you know, to be sent to? And uh, either they asked her, I feel like they asked her, and she wanted, uh, she chose California. You know, but then I I heard that some people weren't asked; they they were randomly sent. Because hmm. uh, uh, so the the thing was, uh, my brothers were coming of age, like fourteen, fifteen years old, and uh, the uh, Fidel Castro and the Cuban government were at at a certain point where they were going to start recruiting. Uh, young children for their armies mm. and uh, and so through the Catholic Church uh, there was a system called uh, uh, the Peter Pan flights uh, ah, yeah okay. I've, I've, I've read so, about this before yeah, yeah 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 and so my brothers were I think uh, two of the 14,000 kids that were sent to America. I don't know if it was 14 or it might be 14, 15,000. I don't know. I don't know that number. And so they, they were two of that number that were sent to the United States. And shortly after that, uh, my parents were supposed to, I mean, this was supposed to be months after they were supposed to meet my brothers, you know, in California and get on with their life. But uh, the Cuban Missile Crime, my brothers were sent sent over uh and a month later the cuban missile crisis happened and uh the wall went up oh, wow. and my parents weren't able to see uh my brothers uh, for five years mm. so through through that their most important you know years of their lives were spent in a country with foster parents and uh you know hoping to see their parents again 
And, you know, during that time, during that five years, you know, I was conceived and, and I was born in Cuba. And, uh, and then uh, I think two years, about a year and a half to two years after I was born, um, that's how we ended up. Uh, you know, then they, they, you know, after I was born, then they granted my mom and dad the visa and uh, to leave the country. And we were able to to reunite with the with my brothers. But by that time, my brother was uh, was sent off. He was uh, my older brother joined the army and he uh, he wasn't able to fight in Vietnam because he didn't have his uh, U.S. citizenship. Wow. So instead, they sent him to Germany, where he became uh, one of the drivers for all the big shots and, you know, commanders and, and sergeants and whatever. Um, and my brother Danny, you know, stayed back and uh, he didn't join the army or anything or wasn't, you know, drafted. Um, so, yeah. That's you know long. That's the long story short. No, that Cold War stuff is so fascinating. Also, especially especially where it involves Cuba, because yeah, your brothers, you know, it's like uh, if if there if just a couple of circumstances were different, they could have just as easily been sent off to the Soviet Union and been in the military there, you know, Absolutely. as opposed to, to being here. Yep, exactly, exactly, or. Um... Yeah, or sent off. I think there was a, a war that Cuba was fighting. Uh, I think it was Angola. I'm not sure. I, I don't know the details to that, but that's what my parents were afraid of. So somehow or another, we ended up in Southern California, and I don't regret it. Yeah. And uh, I think yeah, I think it's it's brilliant. I've been here since, and and you know, it's my home, and uh, love it. Of course, yeah, and you know, it, it also opens up a fascinating. Uh, perspective broadening the perspective you know especially for those of us who grew up in the metal you know there are so many negative things associated with the catholic church and so much stuff that has come out that was you know clearly awful and systemic and uh, institutionalized and, and very worthy of criticism but then on the other hand to be reminded uh you know things like that operation peter pan were were really driven by the catholic church and you know, we're, yeah. you know, that's, you know there are some positive things too, you know? Yeah. Every organization has a dirty stain, you know, there's a lot of good, but there's always something, you know? Uh, so yeah. 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 Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you can't be an organization right. <laughs> that large and for that long without, uh, yeah. Without yeah. Some checks in both sides of the columns, the good and bad columns. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, music was happening in your household, I assume. Was that where your parents um, into music? Yeah, my earliest recollection of music was, uh, well, there's a photograph uh, of myself uh, at, at a turntable at a really old, you know, record player. It's a color picture. It's not a black and white. So it's not that old. <laughs> right. So the fact it was in my maybe 60s, uh, 60, 60, about 68, 1968 or 69. Mm. And it's me hovering over a record player. And um, I have 
Rolling Stones Flowers album. And I'm putting that song, that album on. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, the, my brother, I, my brother, Danny, my second oldest brother, he, uh, he had a guitar and, um, and so that's, those are the earliest memories of anything to do with music. Uh, but then after, after a while we moved into this, I remember we moved into this other house in Bell. Bell is the city that, uh, that Tom Mariah graduated from high school. Mm. So he graduated from Bell High School and I lived in Bell. Uh, so to give you an idea of how close we were all. And um, so uh, I remember my parents having these little get togethers and parties and music playing, and you know, my brother, my sister, you know, dancing, my mom and dad dancing. And so, you know, the parties were happening, people were coming over and, you know, it's very celebratory in, 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 you know, events and, you know, whether it's birthdays or holidays, whatever. But it was, I, I remember that, you know, it's really cool memories, you know. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, uh, musicians, no. Uh, I, I believe my brother Danny attempted to play drums at one time and he did play a live show. I remember watching him at this Cuban club that he played drums. He played drums for this, this female artist. I forget her name, but he, uh, he played one time and, uh, but you know, and then going to those Cuban clubs, I remember, uh, watching a lot of Cuban bands play Latin, uh, salsa bands. And then, you know, in the afternoons on like Sundays, they would have a, a met, they call them the matinee. And, um, uh, and they would have like rock bands play, and I think uh, I think during that period was my whole fan, uh, fa- my fascination with drums started. Mm. You know, it's what's uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's almost a, a it's got to be a cliche, but for me, as uh, you know, an Irish Catholic kid growing up in the Midwest, my first exposure to any kind of Latin percussion or Cuban culture was the reruns of I Love Lucy. You know, seeing yeah. Desi Arnaz yeah, yeah. and 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 thinking as a very young kid, like, wait, that's a job you can have as a band leader at a nightclub? Like, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that I Love Lucy show was definitely. Uh, uh, it, there was a. You felt, in a way, you felt like accepted. Hey, you know. Wow, there, there's a Cuban. Awesome, I can identify with someone on television. Yeah, you know, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it was pretty cool, you know, to see that. So I know uh, for rock music for you, like a lot of uh, mutual friends of ours and people that have been on the show before. I'm thinking about David Ellison and uh, a lot of guys. Kiss was the was a big gateway into uh, wanting to do this uh, for a living and, and falling in love with all that. Um, can you tell me about your first encounter with Kiss? Man, it, it had to have been. There was a guy that lived across the street, and uh, or his grandparents. 
lived across the street from my house in Southgate. Uh, God, I can't remember his name. Uh, and I usually have a really good memory. Um, he, he gave me a Kiss Destroyer album. Mm. And uh, I believe I still have it. And I think that's where it all started. And uh, oddly enough, he, the guy that gave me that Kiss album, um, when I got my first drum set, he and I went to uh, uh, like a Radio Shack electronic store and because uh, I had a little tape recorder. And uh, so we bought uh, a little mixer uh, that could divide one, like if you plug it into your microphone input on your tape or cassette recorder, uh, you could plug in four different microphones mm-hmm. instead of one. I had a, I and, had a uh, my, my friend that I was in my first band with when I was 13 had one of those. Uh, see, <laughs> yeah. there you go. It was awesome. You know, yeah. you put four microphones and we bought one. And uh, I remember it was kind of like a beige kind of looking thing with four little knobs and inputs in the front and one in the back. And, um, and he recorded me, you know, playing drums. I don't remember where that tape is or anything. It's, it's gone. Um, the earth swallowed it. somehow. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was my first experience with kiss and kiss became my fascination. You know, after that, I think I bought, um, um, Kiss Alive, which was my first uh, Kiss record that I ever, I, the second Kiss F record that I ever had, but the first one I bought. And so, yeah, that was, uh, that was it. That's how it started. And then, you know, uh, and I started buying posters and, you know, I, I knew that's what I wanted. Uh, uh, that's the career I wanted to take my entire life because, I don't know, I just, became a fascination as a young kid and listening to the audience on that album mm-hmm. you know uh was was captivating as as well as the music and the energy in the music you know especially later on uh when i went back and started buying their old catalog you know the first kiss album mm-hmm. the second mm-hmm. you know uh, and uh i realized the energy uh, had changed from those first recordings to the live record. And um, so, you know, it, it, it was just kind of cool. It's like, wow, they really sped it up, you know. Yeah. Uh, the songs and, uh, you know, they they were just a little bit different. The energy was way better. I, I, I enjoyed that album. And I still do. It's awesome. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to sp- uh, spend a lot of time with Ace. Um, I had him as a guest at... Uh, Pre-pandemic, I used to host a interview series at the Musicians Institute in Hollywood, and I, you know, had a 90-minute Q and A with with Ace there. And then more recently, via Zoom, we did a whole. Uh, I do a show uh, with the Notfest channel called the Disc Dive, where we go through an artist's entire discography. So I did every record Ace has ever been on, uh, and that was so much fun. And something that comes up came up in both of those conversations and of course comes up a lot in the kiss lore is how much alive sent people back into their catalog how that was like a a huge turning point where uh, there was a a, a real entry for so many fans was discovering them via kiss alive and then 
going backwards. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Definitely. That album had uh, a bit of magic. And and this is jumping, you know, eons ahead. But before we before we leave Cuba (laughs) as a as a topic, I remember getting that Grip Incorporated CD and putting it on in my car. It was long enough ago that it was, you know, a CD Walkman that had one of those little cassette adapters that went in the cassette player. Um, oh, hell yeah. And, yep, uh, that. yeah. And that record opening with that, you know, very much Latin flavored Cuban uh, big drum intro, I just thought was such a, especially at that time and in that moment in your career, it was such a cool statement artistically, even of like, okay, this is, you know, it didn't say Dave Lombardo on the front of the record, but it very much felt like a, uh, like a statement of purpose or like a kind of, you know, here, here's who I am outside of the thing you know me for. And here's all this yeah. other stuff that I can do. And putting that right at the beginning of the record, I just, I remember way back then thinking that was so cool. Thanks. Yeah, that was, uh, I love that. I love doing that. That was highly influenced by one of my favorite drummers, uh, you know, Tito Puente, which is a Latin, Latin jazz or salsa percussionist. And, uh, you know, one of his, um, one of his many, many pieces on, on this album called, uh, oh man, uh, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> um, anyways, I'll figure it out. Shit, I should have my computer on and I'd be looking it up at the same time. But he has this album. And uh, where it's uh, very, it's percussive heavy. There's a couple maybe, you know, Latin jazz songs on there, but for the most part, it, it's percussion and a lot of uh, um, chants, uh, uh, Cuban religion, religious chants, and um, and so that was influenced by that particular record. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that was just something I just wanted to do, and and you know. Uh, the producer liked the idea, and we just went forward and, and just started layering drums. I'll have to look up that record and, and check it out. <laughs> given, oh, yeah. Given how yeah, much that, I love the thing you did, I'll probably dig that a lot, too. Oh, that album is fantastic. That was a very proud moment in my life to to release that record. Yeah, and, I that, and that band had that um, punk singer in it, and it just, yeah, there were a lot of different different things that came together that made that record really cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to ask you before we even get into any of the big four shows and even before we talk about the early days of the encounters between your two bands, I want to ask you about the time that you were drafted to fill in for Lars, which uh, has almost never happened. You know, e- even when cause I think about even when Metallica did the 30th anniversary shows in the Bay where it was like four nights in a club and every conceivable uh, guest person you can think of in terms of vocalists, guitarists, and bass players. Uh, when I had Portnoy on the podcast, and, and he's uh, a pal and a big Metallica fan, he noted that uh, they had, of all these guitar players, bass players, singers, uh, horn players, string instruments, they didn't have a single guest drummer. Having someone else behind the kit in Metallica is extraordinarily rare you know you're on a extremely short list of humans who have done that 
what, yeah. can, what do you remember about that experience and what can you tell me about, you know, that 11th hour conversation of like, uh, hey, Dave, uh, you think you can come play some songs with us? I think that was like 2004 yeah. or something, maybe. Right. Um, well, I remember being approached uh, by uh, Slayer's manager. And uh, he he just basically said, hey, Dave, we have a bit of a crisis. Uh, Lars can't make the show. And I was like, okay, what's going on? And they asked if I'd be interested. I don't know if he said, you know, if, if I'm interested in doing the set or or, you know, a few songs, whatever. Uh, but I I took one look at the, the set list and I wasn't very familiar with uh, their later material, um, so I agreed you know to the two opening songs, and um, and so you know we went I met up with the guys and we hung out in their little uh, like rehearsal room dressing room and. And uh, we jammed. We jammed the two songs that I was familiar with, and um, and then you know shortly after that we went on stage. We had a you know great time in the room. Uh, love those guys. I've never had you know any any beef with them or anything. You know, just you know it's always been amicable and kind, and you know they've always been great you know towards me, and and I have likewise. Uh, so you know we had a great time, and and I've known Robert Trujillo. Uh, you know, since the suicidal days, and um, I actually performed with Trujillo on a cover uh, of of Battery. Oh wow! So, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's fun. out there. Interesting, because yeah, so, that and that was the song you guys opened with at, at Donington, and right? Then, yeah, right. So we we played that, and uh, and then you know, of course, uh, Four Horsemen. You know, we did that as well. So yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a moment in history, moment in time, of course, and uh, a, I, mo I a moment on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I love it. It, it was it was amazing. You know, especially when I went into the double bass section, uh, you know, in battery at the end. Yeah, and uh, James was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And that and that's the thing, right? Because uh, you know, and and this conversation comes up a lot on the podcast, and and just in general, I think the thing with with Lars, and this is uh, you you first have to acknowledge the massive role he played as a, in the band in terms of assembling the band and then arranging the songs and steering a lot of the career choices and the aesthetics and the creativity. But even from a purely drum standpoint. There's something about his particular style of playing that I think is perfectly suited to that band. Like it just wouldn't yeah. sound the same without. No, it wouldn't. You know the Absolutely way that he plays. Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. The band would take on a whole different personality if anybody else would be, you know, behind the kit. Yeah, and uh, that's why I wouldn't change Metallica for for anything. I mean, Metallica is who they are, and and that's it's it's commendable that they've maintain their lineup you know pretty much intact you know and uh well 
obviously not, you know, with, with the base player changes. Well, no, it's the it, passing it, of Cliff, you know, but, you know, pretty much. No, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, as I was skipping ahead a little bit, but some a conversation I remember having, I went to see the big four, the theatrical thing um, that you guys did uh, that was uh, the broadcast from Sophia that played in movie theaters. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, by the way, I went with a buddy of mine. Um, you know, we're both in our forties. Like he and I are about the same age. And we thought we went to the, the AMC in Burbank and we thought, okay, it's going to be the two of us and like six other metal dudes in their forties. And we got there, it was sold out and, and it was packed with young thrashers like these kids that were teenagers who had bullet belts and like brand new destruction and creator shirts and during slayer and slayer only there was a pit in the movie theater (laughs) people went down to the front in front of the screen and it was funny i remember we were walking out i said to my friend like dude they could have had merch outside (laughs) if we if we came out of the screening and there was a merch table people would be buying merch yeah it was it was gnarly, but uh, but anyway, I bring that up because I remember seeing that, and then I also got to see the show in Indio, and just you know, like just like sports fandom when people are talking about the different teams and the coaches and the quarterbacks and whatever, you know, talking to my friends at that show, and we were talking about uh, the way the billing order ran at all of those shows, and I was like, well, I think it's really interesting that if you look from the top down, you have. At the, at the top, a band that has had very few lineup changes, one of them because of death, another one after like a decade plus, um, has been with basically the same management, has been on the same label. Uh, and then the band right under there at that particular time, and of course it was, you know, Jeff's last performance coming out for those couple songs. At that time you had the original lineup and it was like basically the same record label, basically, you know, and then you go down and then Megadeth and it's like, well, you have the two guys that are the same. Everyone else has changed a bunch. The labels have changed a bunch. They've had a million managers and then you go down to Anthrax. They've had different singers. You know, it's like there's something to be said for that consistency and being able to, to hold it together. I felt like watching those big four shows, you could really get a sense where it's like, there's, there's something to this, you know, the, the fact yeah. that um, this lineup is arranged the way that it is. And then you can pinpoint with each of those bands, you know, at that time, the, the consistency with, with holding the, the organization together, the team, you know, on stage yeah. and off. Um, there's, you know, there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. There is. And, uh, you know, playing, you know, the first shows with, with Slayer and playing what I call the last, the last shows of Slayer, because to me, you know, our unit, you know, was very important. And, you know, yeah, I feel kind of proud to have been able to play with, with Hanneman, you know, all the way till the end. Oh, I'm so happy. I saw that. I'm so happy. I saw that show. Yeah. 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 One of the lucky ones. Indeed. Um, And in fact, I was having this conversation with somebody like irrespective of the fact that I was about to talk to you, this just, this came up, um, just the other day, but one one of my first metal shows, the Peace Cells was the record that got me into metal. To to go make a very long story very short, I grew up as a young kid. I had an older brother. I was into punk and new wave and, and stuff like that. And then when I was about thirteen or fourteen ish, 
it was basically 87, 88. Um, a friend of mine gave me a cassette of P cells and it was just like the lightning bolt moment where everything changed. And I went directly from Adam and the ants and the Smiths and the cure into thrash, like even skipping classic metal and hair metal <laughs> going straight into that. Yeah. And, um, I bought a magazine, uh, called cream presents thrash metal issue number one, because it had Dave Mustaine on the cover. And I knew he was the guy from that tape that I liked. And then there was an article inside from a writer named Don Kay, who decades later I would meet when I was a reporter at MTV covering movies. And he was a, he was a movie reporter and we met at like a film junket. And I was like, wait, are you, you're not the same Don Kay that wrote for thrash metal magazine in the eighties. Are you? He did an article called the 20 greatest thrash metal albums of all time, which is hilarious. Cause it was like 1987. Um, but at the same time, like that list probably wouldn't change much. And, uh, I made it my mission, you know, I got out my little loose leaf paper and I wrote down every record that was on that list. And I made it my mission to use my allowance and lunch money to buy every one of those records. And, you know, Rain and Blood was number one. I think Hell Awaits, Hell Awaits was in the top five. I forget where it was. And then, yeah, one of my, gosh, I guess my second or third metal show ever as a teenager was Slayer, Motorhead and Overkill in indianapolis oh yeah and uh okay. yeah it was uh south of heaven um and I, ha I had that shirt actually until just about a year ago when i finally had to accept that i will never squeeze into it again and yeah uh, right they were pretty small weren't they <laughs> i have yep. a bunch of i have a bunch of slayer <laughs> prototype shirts and these things are tiny man we were small back, at, back we then were. You know? yeah yeah yeah, I I, I I sold it to uh, someone in Japan for 300 bucks, so it went to a good home. Um, wow. But yeah, I kept that World Sacrifice Tour shirt uh, all the way all the way up until. Um, but yeah, it, it's I feel very blessed to have gotten to see, I mean, that show in particular, of course, Slayer, the Slayer lineup, and Motorhead, um, and, you know, Overkill was great. They Overkill seemed like rock stars with what I then would learn later as an adult was like, Oh, they made all of that staging and production. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. What, a, what just a riser will do for you. Um, Oh yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, man, just incredible. So I want to ask about the early, early days then of that scene kind of coming together. And of course, you know, the, the big four always being associated with one another. Do you remember what the first, uh, Slayer and Metallica interactions were like, or first kind of hearing about them, or getting the demo, or um, we played at a, at a very very small club, maximum capacity, two hundred and fifty three hundred people. It, it was Metallica and Slayer, and. Uh, Ron McGovney was on bass. Mm. Dave Mustaine was on second guitar. Um, Dave Mustaine would sometimes uh, sing uh, some songs, and then other times uh, Hetfield would sing. But the person that would talk to the crowd, I remember, was Mustaine. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I, that's what I remember. I remember standing in the front, and uh, they were they were fucking tough as fucking rocks man these guys were i think had been already touring 
and uh, they they just they looked mean and and they were just vicious on stage. It was it was awesome, and uh, I believe you know they inspired us in a lot of ways because then we got a hold of the demo, and um, you know we were influenced definitely by that. I mean, if you listen to hit the lights and you listen to aggressive perfector they have <laughs> the ex- almost the exact same structure there's there's a, an intro that is very similar um you know it was almost a carbon copy of of uh of of hit the lights and yet that has never crossed my mind until you just mentioned it and i've heard each of those songs like thousands of times well <laughs> that's hilarious yeah, when you perform it and you live it you have a whole new perception on things man. yeah this uh they uh yeah slayer did pretty good you know in the beginning uh you know but yeah listen to those they have very very similar sections Although the riffing obviously isn't the same, but um, but yeah, they, they, you, you can tell you can tell that we were influenced. You know? Well, that's cool though the way the different bits of the DNA uh, intersperse with one another. Because I mean, yeah, if, if you break down Metallica to its essential elements, it's like, well, this is Diamond Head plus Motorhead plus maybe a little of this or a little of that. But then it's the unique plus chemistry of those people. Yeah, um, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's so funny how suicidal and misfits and all this stuff comes up in conversations, and then you, of course, end up yeah. end up in those bands. Yeah, it, it's I love the way because it really comes down to then like the chemistry of the people that come together, and the life experiences of who they are. And you know, in Metallica, you have like this Danish immigrant kid who had the huge record collection, and then you have Mustaine, and you have Hetfield, and, um, and with Slayer, you know, I think it's very much uh, the same way where it's like if those. There's something about those four individuals coming together. And um, and you actually, I mean, few logos, I would argue, um, even as iconic as the Megadeth and Anthrax logos are, I would, I would argue that there aren't any logos as recognizable in heavy music, hard rock, even, um, you know, outside of ACDC, Metallica, and Slayer. Uh, is, is, it, is it true that you were the guy that, that scrawled out that first Slayer logo, logo that we all know. Yes, yeah, that was. Uh, uh, I remember meeting in uh, at Tom Mariah's house. I think we were, we were going to rehearse or, or or something, and we were still throwing up in the air uh, names, you know, for the band. And uh, I think uh, I believe Carrie brought brought to the picture um, or to the moment he brought in uh, uh, Wings of Fire was the name of the band was what he was thinking about naming the band. Very metal. And uh, Jeff, Jeff came in and called it Slayer. And, uh, you know, he, he contributed. He said, well, I'm thinking Slayer. And he said, what, what do you guys think? And Tom and I, I don't know if we looked at each other. I, I remember voting for the word Slayer. And, um, and uh, I was in the, in the super early days, I was putting together, you know, a lot of the flyers, some of the artwork, Carrie and I would, would work together and, and put those, uh, 
you know, get some ideas and put them on paper and, you know, print them out and, you know, flyer the city in high schools and everything. Uh, but they asked me, I think maybe because I was the one that was a little more savvy with a pencil, uh, <laughs> what would you, what, what would be the, uh, the logo? And I said, well, the first thing that came to my mind, what, what is a, if someone is called a slayer, you know, they're, they're a killer. And, you know, murderer. So what does he use? He uses a knife. So I held the pencil. I remember sitting on the floor of uh, Tom's house. I remember they had a blue rug. And we were somewhere in between the living room and the dining room. And uh, I I remember this vividly. And I remember holding the pencil, uh, you know, like a knife. And then slashing, you know, the paper. And I'm left-handed, so there's a reason why it looks a certain way. Yeah, me too. And so with a left hand, you know, you could easily hold the pencil with a uh, – like like you're holding a knife, and you could uh, carve out Slayer's name. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and I we, did that. And we also get that ink or pencil stain on the side of our hands because unlike right-handed people, we're passing over what we're writing. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. That is so cool. I mean, and that's got to just be from a design perspective. There's something about the brilliant simplicity of the Slayer logo, the Metallica logo, and, and the way that it then lends itself just in its shape to these different interpretations in merch and record covers and stuff. I mean, what does it feel like even for you now to see so many people with that thing that you scrawled out on the blue rug uh, tattooed well, on? You know, you know? <laughs> it feels pretty good. You know, it's uh, it's kind of cool, you know. But uh, yeah. Oh man, it's uh, it, it, <laughs> to be a fly on the, to be a fly on the wall of of you and Hetfield talking about creating those logos. <laughs> Just yeah, right. That's <laughs> amazing. It'd be cool. Amazing. Um, so yeah, so when you this is an interesting question. When you played the Four Horsemen with the band in two thousand four, were you playing? mechanics uh no life to leather demo version in your mind <laughs> or is it or is it four horsemen at that point uh, i was four horsemen at that point yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and i made sure to listen back and you know listen to everything and yeah you know uh you know make sure i got it right and yeah it wasn't uh the mechanics version yeah because El- elfson has told me that when uh you know, obviously Megadeth, you know, doing mechanics that he learned the Ron McGuffney bass parts. And so by the time oh, he yeah. heard, he heard kill them all, it was, um, you know, a different, different animal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, funny story. Uh, I was going to join Megadeth when I left Slayer the first time in 86. I thought I, I knew everything about Megadeth. I did the the foreword for Mustaine's book with Slash. I, I'm the guy who, you know, the as told to. I'm a consummate Megadeth nerd. I have never heard this, so please go on. Yeah, it was very. <laughs> on, it, it was on the down low. Yeah. Uh, it was very much on the down low, and and you know, probably Mustaine doesn't remember this, but they had opened up. For, or they were opening up for Alice Cooper during the Rest in, rest in Peace, uh, or no, Peace Cells. I'm sorry, Peace Cells tour. And uh, I went to the Long Beach Arena, and uh, I met wow. with the guys. 
Wow. And uh, I, I don't. I mean, the, the, I, I believe that the main issue at that time was when I saw the guys, they didn't look very healthy. Right. And the, it, I think it was a very uh, dark period for them. And uh, it wasn't, I had heard rumors of, you know, you know, drugs and stuff like that. And, you know, I was no saint, but I kept it in check. You know, and uh, he, you know, they just didn't look healthy to me. I I didn't see uh, a a healthy path for myself. Well, and it was it was Alice who took those guys aside very famously when they were opening for him and was like, hey, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm, I'm your ghost of Christmas future. Um, You know, I've been right where you guys are. And this is this. This isn't going to end well if you don't pull it together. And of course, it took them a few yeah, years sure to enough. do it. But yeah, and sure enough, Gar Samuelson died. Yeah, you know, he's he was an amazing drummer. You know, we've Megadeth and Slayer played you know many times together and shared and shared so a member know, shared, shared a member for a while. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I just didn't see things go well. And then I, you know, of course, you know, rethought, you know my position and uh and with a little bit of coercion from rick rubin i returned yeah that was around the time what did they had uh the guy from whiplash filled in for you for some shows right right yeah Um, yeah yeah and you and you were instrumental in bringing i don't want to i don't want to overstate this if it's not you know 100 percent. but my understanding is that you were kind of the guy who brought rick rubin around slayer is that right Yes, uh, I heard, you know, through our ventures and tours, and I, I think we were up in the Northeast, uh, and um, somebody had come to the show and said, hey, the major label, Columbia Records, is interested in you guys. And um, and I, I don't know at that moment when I first heard where the conversation went, but when we got home, I remember... Uh, asking Carrie, uh, what do you think we should do about this? He said, well, we're already signed to Metal Blade and we really can't, you know, get out of the contract, you know. And I, you know, I had heard, you know, through the years, you know, famous saying, you know, contracts are made to be broken and all this, you know, (laughs) or you can renegotiate or whatever. And Metallica was on Megaforce. You know, when the electric came around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plenty of precedent. Yeah, and so at that that time, I I felt, you know, I'm the kind of guy who leave no stone, you know, unturned. You know, hey, pursue it. You something, you know, something crosses your path. Don't just let it, you know, sit there, you know. Mm -hmm. See what what goes on, uh, what comes out of it. So I called up uh, Columbia Records in New York. And this was all, I, I believe it was all beyond, behind, you know, you know, the guys, the guys back in the band. You know, I just went out, I called Columbia Records and I said, I asked them if, um, you know, I need to, I told him I needed to speak to a gentleman uh, named Rick Rubin. Uh, and I told him who I was. Wow. And, uh, and they said, well, you know, they put me on hold for I don't know how long. And they said, well, no, Rick Rubin isn't at this office. Uh, here's the number where you can reach him. 
so they gave me, you know, his New York City number where uh, they were on Elizabeth Street in, in, in New York City, Def Jam. So I called and, and, you know, had a brief conversation, you know, with him and uh, reiterated what, you know, he had, he had said, and which was, you know, I'd like to come talk to you guys and see what you guys are doing and, you know, just hang out with you guys. And, and I agreed and I told the guys they agreed. And uh, Rick Rubin came over my house, my mom and dad's house in Southgate with Glenn <laughs> Friedman. I don't know if you know. Glenn yeah. Glenn famous, Friedman. famous punk photographer, of course. Yeah. Photographer. Yeah. And I think he produced the suicidal tendencies record. And he took the very first one. Every classic picture of your future band, the Misfits, was taken by Glenn Friedman. Exactly. Maybe not every classic, but a lot of those classic photos, yeah. But a lot of them, yeah. Minor threat. And, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. I follow him on Instagram. I love when he posts those old pictures. It's awesome. And um, and so they showed up, and they followed me to Tom Araya's, uh house and garage, and we sat there. We played before them and, 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 and discussed the future, and, you know, and history, you know, went on. Yeah, well, so. his, history indeed. I mean, I hip hop has been important in my life as well as metal, and my entryway into hip hop was Slayer and Rick Rubin, uh, because I used to see pictures in metal magazines, and this is way before Anthrax and Public Enemy did the song together. But I used to see pictures of Scott Ian wearing Public Enemy shirts, and then there was a kid uh, who, you know, my freshman year of high school that I would see in the hallways wearing a public enemy shirt. And one, you know, and this was, this was back when you could identify like 90% about another kid based on what you wore, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I was, yeah. I was probably wearing a Slayer or, or Megadeth shirt uh, when I approached this kid who I saw in public enemy shirts. And I was like, Hey, what is that? Cause I thought it was probably a metal band because Scott Ian wore the shirt. And um, that conversation turned into him and I making tapes for each other. And I made him a tape with a bunch of thrash on it. And he made me a tape of Public Enemy. And the first thing I heard when I put it in was Slayer because they were rapping over Slayer. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. So, yeah, that, you know, I mean, that's Rick Rubin. If that if Rick Rubin yeah. hadn't been the connective tissue between there and there, I would have never discovered Public Enemy. Yeah. And then from there it was, you know, Boogie Down Productions and Yo! MTV Raps. And, um, yeah. you know, I got into all of that stuff but that was the entry point and that was yeah you know and to think yeah your parents house in southgate sitting there with rick rubin and glennie friedman like that's that's gonna yeah. that's gonna end up a kid in indiana getting into rap <laughs> like, you wow know? So, yeah yeah the way that that stuff yeah. well, splinters I mean, out that was that was right there you know 85 yeah 1985 where I think uh, Ruben became, at least to me, like a, a major influence, even though he was a, a producer, he really mm -hmm. enjoyed, he was always there for my, uh, for my, tr for the tracking of drums, mm -hmm. you know, and pre-production, mm -hmm. you know, and he would, he would work with me. He would ask me, Hey, try this beat there, try this here, you know, can you create a drum roll? to lead into this next part. And, you know, he really opened my mind uh, to the creative, um, you know, aspect of, of structuring, 
uh, music and 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 just all that. It, it was it was fascinating, and I still take a lot of you know that influence you know with me you know everywhere I go. Um, I love so, yeah, he hearing was, that. He was instrument. It was instru- He was instrumental, I think, in my drumming evolution. And uh, I, you know, I have a lot to thank him for. And even today, he, how diverse he is in the in the projects that he takes on. Uh, that has inspired me, uh, you know, to take on unique and different and you know, stepping outside of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my comfort zone um, and and exploring and experimenting, you know, as well as Patton and as well as John Zorn. I believe those three people, uh, artists are the three main um, oh, yeah. influences in my life. Yeah. And thank you for the Bungle uh, quarantine live stream thing. I watched that. Um, that oh, was, it was brilliant. Man, it, it was great. So it surprised good. me. It surprised me how well it turned out and how well we performed because after not playing since February, um, we only had one rehearsal. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and then the following day, hey, guys, we really can't take long in doing this. COVID, you know, we have to get tested every time we go in there and, mm-hmm. you know, into the studio and, and all this. And, and uh, you know, they uh, – you know, we we didn't have much time, but man, we nailed it, and we learned yeah. a new song. And know, and that was in the in the library, the Van Halen's. Yeah, and you guys were yeah, in a library, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> and then all the little cameos well, that I, popped up. And... Actually, actually, it was a studio, uh, but it it looked like the interior of a of a library. Oh, it was so cool! I say, hey, yeah. set, set dressing means a lot in these quarantine things. Oh yeah, I think bands yeah. learn that pretty quick too, where it's like you got to you got to do a little something. It can't just, you know, I mean, the guy from Stained did his on his couch and I guess that works if you're the guy from Stained, but, um, but I, but I like, uh, yeah, the ones that, that have a little production or a little something interesting happening. And the bungle one was definitely one of those. Uh, I love hearing you say that about Rick Rubin because, you know, obviously different artists have different experiences with him, but for my money as, as a fan, my favorite drum records in terms of sound and performance, uh, you know, rock drums are Danzig One, uh, The Cult, Electric, and South of Heaven. And those are all, you know, there's there's one guy who's consistent with those three records. <laughs> so it's it's nice to hear, yeah. to have that confirmed that he's, that he's super involved in the drums because I just, I love the sound and the performances on, on all three of those records. Those are, those are the ultimate yeah. air drumming yeah, yeah. records. Right. I remember receiving the South of Heaven record and how unhappy I was that my drums were up front. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's not yeah. normally what you hear from a drummer. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, for, for the, you know, the mix, it's like, wow, I'm used to hearing guitars, you know, up in front all yeah. the time. And, you know, and, and the drums were faint. But he wanted something different. He wanted the drums tighter and up front and in your face. And, yeah. uh I believe there was a lot of, you know, high moments in on that album, you know, with uh what's that song? Uh Well, dude, Spill the Blood uh, is is my yeah, favorite. Yeah, Spill the Blood. Um but the one uh that starts with the chugging guitars. Um Ghost of War. Fuck. Ghost of No, um 
Hold on. Let me go. Here we go. <laughs> Slay yourself to heaven. Man- mandatory suicide? I'm trying to think now. Like, nope. what song? <laughs> Spill the Blood's my favorite Slayer song of all time, and it's largely because ah. of the drums, especially the the drum where it cuts out and it's just the clean guitar, and then the drums yeah, kick yeah. in. Oh, geez, here it is. It behind the crooked cross. That's that's why I was thinking Ghosts of War because of war theme. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, dude, the drums are so upfront on that on that whole record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crooked Cross is towards the end of side one. It's right before Mandatory Suicide. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I've, I still think of that record in, in terms of sides because I remember flipping the tape over all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember Rain and Blood was such a short album that the entire album repeats on both sides. So if you had an autoplay <laughs> cassette player, which I eventually yeah. had, it just kept flipping the whole entire record over and over. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Super awesome. So I got to ask you uh, before we wrap up because there's so many different things you've done that i would love to talk about i have a misfits tattoo i uh used to (laughs) once upon a time every halloween used to sing in a misfits tribute band with uh kind of a revolving lineup but it was usually some guys from the bands bleeding through and 18 visions and tiger army and different buddies that i was friends with but i was always the singer but it was always with different people on stage and i do a an instagram account that um I've certainly tagged you in before called this day in Danzig where it's uh, (laughs) I've spent many, many a late night finding pieces of Danzig history that coincide with every date in the calendar. Um, So you get, you you definitely get a happy birthday every year, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but, but yeah, I want to, you know, one of the things that rather famously Glenn and Jerry were able to agree on was how much they love Dave Lombardo. Um, so <laughs> what was that conversation like? How did, well, that, how that, did was, that come under your, under your radar? I, I, I received a phone call from, from Glenn and uh, I, I love Glenn. He's, he's, he's a great guy. He's always been cool to me. We've always had great conversations when we see each other, you know, um, and he, he he gave me a call and, and just basically, you know, said, hey, look, uh, Jerry, he said, basically, Jerry and, and, and he had, had resolved their issues and uh, he's willing to do some shows with the Misfits. And, and, you know, they were getting back together, he said, but there was one stipulation and it's that uh, Glenn uh Glenn said that he is the one that chooses the drummer mm. and that he wanted, he wanted me. And that was it. There was no argument, no suggestions. He didn't want to bring any of the old drummers. You know, he, he wanted, he wanted me. I was like, wow, dude, that's, you know, I'm, you know, humbled. Thank you. And uh, he said, yeah. And <laughs> so, you know, we agreed for us. I knew it was going to be big. I, I, the name, when you look, think of the Misfits and you think of the most iconic, uh, um, you know, logo in the world and mm-hmm. the most iconic name, yet the band is so mysterious because they stopped playing gigs and, you know, in the early 80s. And they, uh, and they were never big when they were around. You know, for all intents, no. they they were they were punk big. Which what's that? Four hundred people at a huge. That's a huge yeah. show. You know. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so, but for some reason, my instincts were like, "You got it, man. Let's do it." But I think the funniest, the funniest moment was when uh, when I spoke to Jerry, and you know, I met up with Jerry. He picks me up at the airport, and, and he said, "Hey, I thought you lived up in upstate New York or New Jersey." When Glenn told me. You know, this guy, Dave Lombardo, he says, oh, yeah, doesn't he live up here, you know? And it's like, no, no, he's 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 from California. He goes, oh, yeah, I thought he was just some Italian kid from from upstate or something. You know? your, your, your name does end in a vowel. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he, he said that, and, uh, and it, it was cool. We, we got along great. Uh, I love Jerry. Great guy. And... Uh, and so I, I remember Jerry telling me that, oh yeah, I, I spoke to uh, I spoke to Glenn and told him how it was going, and I basically told him that, you know, it's it's like dropping a Lamborghini engine in a 1959 Chevy. <laughs> that sounds like such a good Jerry thing to say. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like dropping a Lamborghini engine into a '59 Chevy. What is what is you it? The, his his Misfits Corvette or what is that car he has? <laughs> oh yeah, he he has a new one now. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I bet I bet after those shows, I would hope so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Definitely. That's oh, so cool. So, yeah, brilliant experience. It's an honor to play with those guys as well as with Doyle. You know, Glenn and and Jerry, so much history, mm-hmm. so much love for that band. I've never ever heard a band sing. I mean, uh, uh, an audience sing along to music while I'm on stage. You know, you're, right. you're hearing. I actually hear the crowd as well as as Glenn's vocals and. My monitor. I wear earplugs on stage, and I have my monitor, you know, mixed, you know, pretty loud, you know, with drums and guitars and vocals, and and yeah. I'm still able to hear, you know, the passion uh, from the people singing along, and and it's so celebrate, you know, it's like a celebration. Every mm-hmm. Misfits concert I've done, it's been a celebration. Everyone's so happy that these guys are together. Yeah, I mean, just. And and especially, and I know, uh, you know, Glenn had said this in interviews also, as we lose so many of these icons um, in recent years, you know, I know he was particularly affected by like Bowie and, um, of course, Jeff, you know, it, it, it reminds you like, um, you know, some of these bands that never got back together. It's like, it's kind of now or never, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so the fact yeah. that those two were able to, to make it happen. And also even when it happened once, I remember thinking like, okay, this is going to happen once or twice. <laughs> and then all of a sudden yeah. it's like the fifth show, the sixth show, the seventh show. And, and you still get that feeling every time a show's announced, like this could be the last one. So um, there's an excitement to it. Yeah, it could. Every time. It, you know, it could, you know, at, at any time, you know, look, look, look what uh, the, the pandemic's done to everyone. Right. You know? And uh, so, yeah, hopefully there's more, uh, I would assume there is, uh, you know, not like there's anything in schedule. I mean, there's we can't schedule anything because we don't know when things are going to open up. But yeah, I, I I I hope that there is more. I love jamming those songs; a lot of fun. Oh yeah, and you do such a great job with them, and and so and it is so. Uh, it was funny. I remember when you know first learning that you were going to be the guy. 
it's almost yeah it's definitely that like uh, swatting a fly with a bazooka <laughs> kind of fun you know where it's it's like overachieving yeah. like they're gonna have dave lombardo yeah. play in the misfits um and it's no yeah, di- no disrespect like... to anybody who played on those recordings but those you know just a very different style of uh of drumming and not not you know when you think about the misfits you think about the vocal hooks and um right the melodies right. and you know, whereas when you think about particularly Slayer or Metallica, this is something I say a lot about your drumming and Lars. You know, you can cover a Misfits song, and as long as you're managing the tempo correctly, um, you can kind of do whatever on the drums. But you can't cover a Slayer song or a Metallica song and play different fills. Then you're you're not covering it. You know, like there's something about the parts that you actually wrote in those songs, and the parts that Lars yeah, writes in the songs. Well, that, you know, there there is some, there is some there's a, actually a lot of misfit misfits parts that I really wanted to uh, keep because they're just you know you you gotta still hold on to some of the integrity of the music and and not stray too far. One the the musicians in the band are going to correct you, mm. you know, no, the, this part doesn't go like this. You're supposed to play it like this. Like, Oh, okay. And even if I flip it around, I'll do my own variation to make it sound heavier and more powerful. Uh, you know, they still like how it was done on that particular <laughs> record right. or how they remember it. True. So my responsibility is to make sure, uh, you know, as being a higher drummer is to give them, you know, uh, you know what they want. And, and that is making sure that the drum parts are as close, but yet, you know, metronomically correct mm-hmm. and all the rolls and fills and the endings and everything is, you know, have a nice little bow on it, you know, and tied up really nicely. So, um, yeah, there's still a lot of responsibility. Believe me, the music may sound easy to to most which you know it is it's all mid-tempo isn't too fast um it's not thrash fast but you know there's a lot of nuances there's a lot of little cues there's a lot of uh you need really need to pay attention to the moments it would you know whether glenn sings or doesn't if Mm. he extends a midsection Who's going to cue the guys in the band? Yeah, his vocals, but sometimes the other guys, um, you know, they they can't hear or they wait for me to cue them. So I have to make sure I am monitoring everybody on what's ever, what everybody's doing. I can't just go yeah. up there and, you know, uh, and just play and, hey, you guys are supposed to follow me. No, <laughs> I'm supposed to follow the vocalist. Yeah. And if the vocalist comes in at a certain time, I'm supposed to cover the vocalist. You know, and everybody else, you know, I can't, I can't make the singer look bad, you know, I, especially Glenn Danzig, you know, I can't say, Hey Glenn, well, you, you came in wrong. No, I'm supposed to cover, you know, (laughs) when we did the, our little tribute band, um, you know, which was again, like we played on Halloween a couple of times for fun, but in rehearsing those songs, I remember the first thing I was struck by was going in, th- you know, you think you know those songs, and then you really start dissecting them to learn them, to perform them, and you realize how bizarre 
the arrangements are in misfit songs and, and like you said with the vocals especially where sometimes it's like oh he's singing the chorus over the verse part now <laughs> you know like yeah. or or yeah or this part goes four times here and then six times here and then three times here like it yeah there are right. it, it is sort of uh, deceptively and, complicated yeah yeah deceptively deceptively complicated and unusually similar Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. listen to, there's certain songs that have similarities. They start the same, or they have a particular beat that's very similar. And uh, man, you know, I have to sometimes have a little, a little note next to my uh, set list that'll tell me, okay, this one is played this way, yet this one is is this way. You know, I have to have these little sure you know reminders otherwise you know you, you get lost and you can forget which song you're in more difficult <laughs> yeah you you well yeah and glenn doesn't follow a set list you may <laughs> learn it it's like okay i know after this song is this one no he, he'll fucking like randomly oh what, what song should we do let's see and i have to know you know yeah. <laughs> and there's 30 songs so not to you know, there's no complaining here. I'm of just, course, no, no, no. It doesn't sound like that, you're complaining. No, it's just okay, it, 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 it's just it's athletic. That. There's something about it's, it's a challenge. Mentally yeah. athletic and it's challenging, and you have to really know this music. You know, and Jerry, what's what's funny is that you know because he texts, we text each other, you know, on occasion, and I should I should be expecting a, a Merry Christmas from Glenn <laughs> Danzig, which always makes me laugh because it's glenn danzig it's always, <laughs> right but uh, on on the text message it says forward 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 merry christmas so <laughs> you know it's like he's forwarded to so many people that i take you know i'm receiving part of the fwd fwd yeah. fwd merry christmas <laughs> and and, pro- and probably from a flip phone or uh <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So oh, great. Those are, those are very special. I, I think I received Absolutely. a happy Thanksgiving or, or no happy Halloween. I believe it was happy Halloween. That's the one you want. And, uh, from the, yeah. Yeah. That's the one I got from him. You know, that it, one didn't have the forward, the forward to it. The way that you're describing funny. the, the calling out of the songs and everything, it reminds me of Chuck Berry. I've talked to some guys who, who played with, with Chuck Berry a couple of times and, my understanding is Chuck Berry was one of those guys that, you know, the promoter hires the band. It's like Chuck, Chuck yeah. and his like one, his driver or whatever are going to show up and he's going to walk out and be like, uh, you know, you better have found a bunch of guys who know any song I might call out. <laughs> it's like, yeah. There you go. Right. Yeah. That, uh, uh, Buddy Rich was like that too. You know, I think he, he flew in and there was a band and, you know, he'd start playing and, you know, they'd have one <laughs> rehearsal that day and, yeah. and then, you know, on to the next. That's so. a very special class of, of uh, musician and personality that uh, can exist in that space. Yes. So it's really cool. Yeah, it is, definitely. Thanks so much for making the time to do this. And I was happy to our mutual friend, Ross. Uh, this actually all came up because of the, the thing that, uh, the most recent thing you did with Ross. I mean, he's done a bunch of stuff with Ross, but... Um, well, actually, that's very old. <laughs> that was back from 2012. 
I believe I recorded that song back in 2012, maybe even earlier, uh, because I was still in Slayer. Would would this uh, have been before Dead Cross? Oh, yeah. I guess so, yeah, at least a few years. Yeah, before Dead Cross. Yep. So, yeah, eh, very cool song. Uh, Very cool. One of those things. Very that, happy you put that out. One of those things that then, when it's coming out, you're like, "Oh yeah, I forgot about that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was a surprise because it was on the on the the crest of of the wave of the Mister Bungle wave, and I'm like, uh, "Dude, I want, I want to promote this as much as I can, but I'm here under the gun trying to promote Bungle." You yeah. Know? So. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but I, I'm glad he put it out. I'm happy it went for to save the stages. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hopefully it generated some some help, you know, for everyone. And, you know, hopefully we can get back on tour. Yeah. And, you know, back what? to our normal, normal lunacy, you know, instead of this fucking crappy ass, you know, insanity. And for you to have so many great people you've played with and recorded with and so much great material happening all at the same time is a, is a great problem to have, my friend. Yes, it is. I agree. One hundred percent. And there's so much more. Uh, there's just so much more and uh, you know the new Satanic Planet album the new Dead Cross album which hopefully will be coming out you know next year uh, let's see and, and I got a couple uh, I got a movie come, not a movie personally but I, I contributed my drums to a, a major major Netflix film uh, well and, you know uh, what one of my best friends one of my best friends in the entire world uh, I just wrote a book with him uh andy Biersack from blackfell brides um uh the two of you oh. have a project so, so to speak yeah uh, yeah we're part of uh the dc comics yeah uh, uh death metal dark knight uh, mm-hmm. you know uh pieces he, yeah he, he, yeah, to- awesome. he told me you're uh sergeant rock is that right no, no, that's Greg Capullo. I just recently did uh, Capullo is Capullo is the uh, the artist. He's oh, okay. Sergeant Rock. I was uh, Jonah Hex, the cowboy. And, oh yeah. Oh, dude. And that, was, and that was on the recent. That was on the recent one. You know, I came in, made myself known, and I died immediately. <laughs> oh, dude, Jonah Hex is awesome. A, a very uh, Mastodon well, did cool. all that music for that Jonah Hex movie, which unfortunately the movie wasn't great, but the music was cool. Uh, but that's a really cool character. So that's great. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was uh, Josh Brolin actually played him in, the, I think, in the – Josh Brolin and Megan Fox, I think, were in the movie. It was uh, – yeah, Mastodon did the score. This was, I don't know, what year? Ten years ago, probably. Yes. But, but yeah, but that's a character that comes up a bunch, you know, in, in other properties. Oh. So that's awesome. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks again so yeah. much for doing this. Yeah. And uh, look forward to all the stuff that you're involved in. It's always cool. So if you're, if you're involved, I'm thanks, listening man. because it's always going to be good. <laughs> thanks, man. All the best to you, man. Oh, and that record, that Tito Pointe record that I was uh, yes. thinking about. Yes, yes. Top Percussion. <laughs> the album is called Top Percussion. And when you listen, there's a song called 4x2. I think it's called 4x2. Um, uh, shit, here it is. I believe it's called 4x2. And yeah. I'm going to hear I'm gonna, that's I'm, the one, I'm, I'm, some familiarity that, for that me with the, uh, with the yeah. gripping. All right. Awesome. I'll check it out, man. I appreciate that.